This morning, we're beginning our Further Up and Further In series, which will tie into our Easter series, which is going to be called Never Forsaken. And these, these two series are meant to work together. And here's the explanation I wrote about it as, as I was kind of praying and prepping for this over the last couple months. We'll spend eternity exploring the vastness of God. And when we have already explored him over the passing of countless ages, we will still have the joy of learning about him increasingly and forevermore. The great joy and purpose of life is to live it with God. The Holy Spirit continually beckons and invites us to press further up and further in. It's an invitation into his kingdom, up his mountain, into his holy place, onto his throne, and into his presence. In this series, we will seek to listen to that call together as a spiritual family and seek to learn to rest in his presence. As we begin this series, this morning, we're going to start with the concept of life with God. The last thing that Jesus says to his disciples before the ascension, the final statement that he leaves his followers with is this. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Think about the gravity of that. You know, we, we talk about what would your last meal be if you could choose your last meal? Or how would you spend your last day on earth if you could choose how you would spend your last day? Jesus, knowing that this was the day that he would ascend into heaven and, and the, the nature of the relationship would radically change at Pentecost with the Spirit indwelling, but he's physically leaving, knowing that he's not going to walk with the disciples in the same way anymore we have, to, we have to think that there was some intentionality to this statement. I have to believe that this was thoughtful on his part, not just a passing thought. And so the thought that Jesus leaves us with, the final thought that he leaves us with before he ascends and sits down at the right hand of the Father, before the Holy Spirit comes to indwell his people is this, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This statement has been so encouraging to me in my life. When I was younger, I think the thing that I feared the most was loneliness. And part of that is born out of my experience of moving across the world as a nine-year-old and moving across the world again as a 16-year-old. And I knew what it was like to be lonely. I knew what it was like not to have any friends. And that's no longer my greatest fear. But honestly, when I was about 16, 17 years old, if you would have asked me, what's the thing you're most afraid of? It was that, being alone. And so the Lord began to minister to me and speak those words to me in that season of fear that I had. Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. As well as another, another verse from Psalm 23, I set a table before you even in the midst of your enemies, in the presence of your enemies. This morning I want to look at a, several different postures of how we relate to God. Spiritual postures are really important. Perhaps you've talked about them before here at Parker Ford. But a posture 
isn't just a physical posture, even though physical postures have great meaning in every culture. So if I'm having a conversation with Jay, and we're standing like this, looking at each other like this, what's that probably communicating? We, we've reached an impasse. If I'm at the airport, they don't let you in the gate anymore, obviously, but if, if I'm at the airport waiting for someone and I see them, you know, way down there, I see them at baggage claim or whatever, and I'm standing like this, what's that mean? There's excitement. There's joy. That's a posture. These are reflections of something that's happening within us. And um, any, anyone who's um, gone through counseling of any sort knows how, how um, it's important how we posture our bodies towards one another. When I'm listening to my wife, it's important I'm not doing this, right? And vice versa. It works, it works both ways. But that's a reflection of what's inside me. Because what's happening inside of us is we're continually posturing ourselves towards the people around us. And we're continually posturing ourselves towards God. So what I want to challenge you with at the beginning of this morning's sermon, as I'm kind of going through some of these postures, I want you to honestly reflect, how am I postured towards God? What's my posture toward? Don't worry about your spouse. Don't worry about your kids. Don't worry about, you know, your brothers or sisters or your parents. Think about yourself for a moment this morning and reflect, how am I postured towards God? So these are four common postures of relating to God. We see these in Scripture. This comes from um, a book written by one of my favorite modern-day thinkers. His name is Sky Jatani, which is a really cool name. And uh, Sky is, um, his dad is um, Indian um, and Hindu, and his mom uh, was, is uh, American and Christian, and a Caucasian Christian, but he, uh, his mom really wanted him to have um, a name that reflected his father's heritage, so he has the name Sky. Um, but if you listen to Sky, if you just heard him on a podcast already, you'd think, you know, he looks like any other Joe. Um, in America, but Sky is a, a really helpful thinker, and he has a book titled With, which is all about postures towards God, and these are some of the postures that he points out, and he makes note that each of these four postures here that we'll look at seek to exert control over the unpredictability of life, namely the universal human experience of fear and suffering. Who here has felt afraid before? Who here has suffered in some way? If you ask this question in any room across the world, who here has been afraid? Every hand goes up. Who here has suffered? This is the universal experience of humanity, fear and suffering. And from the beginning of human history, men and women have sought to exert some sort of control over the experience of fear and over the experience of suffering. So these are different ways that people have attempted that in their postures towards God. The first one we'll look at is life under God. This spiritual posture is very common in all the religions of the world. In fact, this spiritual posture, life under God, is basically the starting point of every single human religion. All of them. It consists primarily of ritualistic ceremonies, 
rain dances, pagan rituals, superstitions. This posture sees interaction with the divine through a cause and effect mentality. If I perform the correct duties, God will bless me. So think about this story. Do you, uh, I think I put it up there, how the Israelites treated the ark um, in the battle. Do you remember the story at the beginning of 1 Samuel? It's at the end of the, the period of the judges. And one of the last judges was the high priest, Eli. And Eli is the one who raised Samuel. And Samuel is the one who anointed Saul and David. But Eli, um, when he was very, very old... It says that the Philistines attacked the Israelites. And so they, they drew up battle lines and the Israelites were panicking. And so they said, quick, go get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it into our midst because then we're guaranteed victory. If we have the Ark, then we're guaranteed victory. Anybody remember what happens? They're slaughtered. They're absolutely demolished. And the Philistines not only take more land and have victory in the battle, but they end up taking the ark and they take it into their cities. And then God performs these crazy miracles and their gods in the temple fall down before the ark, which is really cool. But what I want to make note of here is the superstitious attitude towards God. Rather than the Israelites seeking a personal relationship with God in conversation, what they seek is a ritualistic relationship with him by which they can manipulate an outcome. In other words, if we have the ark in our midst, we're guaranteed victory. It's a cause and effect relationship with God. But does God interact with his people like that? No, of course not. I've said this before, I'm sure I'll say it again because it's so true. How, How many people have obeyed God and ended up in prison anyways. It's not a cause and effect. That's that's the wrong way to think about interacting with God. It's superstitious and it is the basis of all religion. But you know who does act this way? The demonic. The, The demonic, demons and Satan, they do operate in a cause and effect. Um, another thinker I really appreciate, Andy Crouch, who's uh, from our area here, he, he talks about idols a lot. And he talks about how superstitions delivered at first. So there's a reason why ancient cultures did rain dances. Because at first they probably worked with the cause and effect relationship. But then the Bible goes on to say about idols, those who make them become like them. We, we become like that which we worship. And so all, all of these uh, rituals are, are a, a type of um, interaction with God. So in modern day, it, it doesn't look like a rain dance. Who here has done a rain dance before, right? <laughs> but we still interact with God in cause and effect ways. Thinking that if I just obey this way, Or if I just do this thing, I'm guaranteed success. So, you know, charms that people have or or different things like that. That's also a picture of the life under God posture. Another interesting story from the Bible is Balak and Balaam. Balaam's the one who has the conversation with a donkey, which is really interesting. But Balak was a king 
And the Israelites were being led by Moses in towards the promised land. And so Balak, one of the local kings, hired this, this um, prophetic guy named Balaam. And he hired Balaam to curse the Israelites. And so Balaam is like, I can't do it because that's God's people. And then God sent, tells him to go ahead. And then on the journey, the angel stops the donkeys he's on. And then he starts beating the donkey, and then the donkey talks to him, and then he persists, and he goes on, and he goes up to the mountain to curse the people of Israel, and God stops him and turns the curse into a blessing. And it happens like three times over and over again. It's a strange thing. But Balak's, or Balaam's answer to Balak when he keeps asking, why do you keep blessing these people instead of cursing them? He says, you can't curse what God has blessed. You cannot curse what God has blessed. Think about that for a moment. Why can you not curse what God has blessed? You're going against God. I would take it even further than that. You can't curse what God has blessed because you can't curse God. And God is always with that which he blesses. So why could Balaam not curse the Israelites? Because God was with them. He was in their midst. You can't curse God. Job's friends are another example of this posture, right? They tell Job, well, if you just change your outward behavior, the way that you're sacrificing, if you just scratch God's back in this way instead of that way, he's going to take away the plagues and your life is going to be good again. Cause and effect, superstition. A second posture is the life over God, and this is in part a reaction against the life under God posture. This spiritual posture comes from a combination of reacting against the life under God posture and a post-enlightenment view of the world. In this worldview, the world is viewed through the lens of natural law. Natural laws govern the universe and life within it. There are principles that can be followed to achieve the desired outcome and therefore exert control on life. The universe is like a finely tuned watch. God is the watchmaker. This is the basis for both atheistic and deistic approaches to religion. This has also resulted in churches functioning like corporations and businesses. If we follow the formula, our attendance will skyrocket. So the ancients looked at the world and they saw the divine in everything. So, you know, people, the ancient cultures looked up at the sun and they saw a god. They looked up at the moon and they saw a god. They looked at the trees and they saw spirits giving them life and animals with spirit life. And so everything was personified in a way. And then the, the enlightenment happened and the beginning of modern science. And instead of people looking at the world through mystical lenses, people began to look through the world, through scientific and mathematical lenses. And so rather than seeing the sun as a god personified, people began to see the sun as a giant ball of burning gas with a mathematical equation at its center. This obviously affects the way that you view God and view life. Most of our founding fathers, we would call them Christian, but most of the American founding fathers weren't really Christian in the sense that they had a relationship with God. They were nominally Christian in the sense that they had a belief that there was a God, but at their core, especially if you read their writings, which are pretty messed up, some of them, when it comes to God, they were deists. They believed that God made the earth 
He wrote out a bunch of mathematical equations that hold it all together. It's a finely tuned watch. And then God has stepped back and his hands are no longer on the earth. It's just winding itself down. Playing out its entropy as it winds and winds and winds. Now, the consequences of viewing God in this way is that if God is like a watchmaker and he's removed himself from things, then the earth at the core of everything, at the core of every relationship, at the core of how the universe works are principles that can be followed, that can guarantee an outcome. So lots of modern Christians, even though they would definitely believe in God, they wouldn't be atheists, but lots of Christians live this way as if God is not intimately involved in our lives. And therefore, they're more interested in business principles or life principles than they are with a life-giving relationship with God. And this is where formulas come into effect. There are formulas for megachurches. The lights at a certain level, the music at a certain pitch, the right songs, the the smoke machines, the right building. If you do all of these things, you're guaranteed a certain level of success, at least in the eyes of the world. But remember those people we were praying for that we started our service with, those two or three gathered in the name of Jesus in the secret places? When God views that church, because that's a church, and he views, you know, the quote-unquote successful church with 10,000 people, what's his definition of success? Guarantee you it's not ours. Very, very different. This is a, a side note, but I think it's important. One of the things that God has com- continued to work on in my life is defining what success means. And the best way I've come to understand it, and no, I'm still growing in this way, but when I ask myself, what does it mean to be successful? What I see the scripture saying is be pleasing to God. Live a life that is pleasing and pleasurable to God. And so, if that's the definition of what it means to live by success, then no one needs to know your name. No one, you don't have to have a massive impact on the world. Perhaps you have mental illness. Perhaps you have special needs. Perhaps you're impoverished. Perhaps you're imprisoned. Perhaps you're limited by the realities of, of your experience, and you can be deeply pleasing to God. And he looks upon you and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what it means to be successful. To have God look upon you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You can't get that relationship with God by following principles. You can be, quote unquote, successful. At least in the eyes of the world. So many Christians, I think, we struggle with this. I certainly have from time to time looking for, you know, if I do this and play out this relationship in the right way, I'm guaranteed to get the right outcome. Again, this is a very contractual posture towards God. Third posture that we'll look at this morning is the life from God. And this is the spiritual posture that is probably most common in our culture. This spiritual posture sees God as a divine vending machine. The the prosperity gospel, health and wealth, and other forms of spiritual entitlement come from this understanding of God. It is founded upon man making God in man's image. Let me say that again. This posture towards God 
is based in man making God in his image. God must look like me, must want the same things I want. Um, another author I appreciate is a guy named Scott McKnight. And Scott McKnight um, was a, a New Testament professor at, um, at a seminary for a long time. And he taught a class on the life of Jesus. And for years and years, the first thing he would do every single semester was he would hand out a two-part survey to his, to his students. Have you guys heard this before? This is fascinating. So he would hand out this survey... And he would ask them questions like, what do you think Jesus thinks about this? What was Jesus' personality like? What did Jesus like to do? How did Jesus like to spend his time? What was Jesus interested in? What did Jesus not like? So it was questions about basically Jesus' personality. And so the students would answer it. And then the second part of the survey, it was worded as if it was unrelated. But it asked basically the same questions about the students. What are you like? What do you like? What do you like to do? What don't you like? And year after year, class after class, the results were the same. Jesus looked just like the student. There was a, a Voltaire, the French, um, not theologian, he was a philosopher. He said, God made us in his image, and then we've spent the last 10,000 years returning the favor. This is, this is real. This is real stuff. And this is very real for how we are tempted to interact with God. God does not like, look like you, my friend. He does not look like me. You might reflect his image, and you do. But it's that way, not the other way. This is based in consumerism. It's a contractual relationship with God. And it's a contractual relationship with others. Others, including God, exist to fulfill my needs and desires. Think about the younger son, right, in the, in the prodigal son story. So the father exists for his pleasure. Think about um, the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts. Do you remember what happened with them? So the, it was when the New Testament church was forming, and they held all things in common, and these people were selling their belongings and bringing the money and giving it to the apostles to share with the church. And there's this short story about Ananias and Sapphira, and it says that they sold a piece of land, and then they brought the money to the apostles, and they gave a portion of it to the apostles, but they said they gave everything. And Peter reads their mail, it starts with the husband, re- reads his mail, and what happens to him? Just drops dead. And then a little bit later, Sapphira comes, and she doesn't realize what's already happened, and so she, she perpetuates the lie, and then she drops dead. I usually practice my sermons because I'm such a verbal processor that I need to practice them a couple times to make sure I can stay on, on, <laughs> on the right track. And when I was practicing it this week earlier, I was thinking about this story, and I was so convicted. Because I think about the times when I've told God I've given him everything. And in reality, there are things I've held back from him. Think about the times when I've made a martyr of myself and said, oh, I gave you so much time. I gave you so much money. I sacrificed so much. And yet the things that I've retained control over in my life. And I'm very thankful that I've yet to drop dead.
the rich young ruler who Jesus loved is another example of this posture. Think about the wonder. How, ma- how many of us have had the imagination of like, wouldn't it have been so cool to walk with Jesus? Wouldn't that have been awesome? I mean, it would have been hard, clearly. But wouldn't that have been so special to walk with him? This guy comes up and he has a conversation with Jesus. How do I inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus says, uh, you know, follow the law. And he says, all these I've obeyed. And Jesus says, the one thing you lack. Sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Now, we as Westerners tend to hear, sell all you have and give it to the poor. Oh, no. Like we get stuck there. The emphasis that Jesus was saying was not on the stuff. The emphasis of what Jesus was saying was, come, follow me. And the young man went away very sad because he had great possessions. God was a divine vending machine. We treat church like this so much. So much. We are so tempted to treat church like this. We go to church, and I do this too, and I work here. <laughs> this is my vocation. It's so tempting to be like, well, I didn't like that. I did like that. This is what I wish things were like. At, at Drexel Hill, I haven't been here long enough to start practicing this at Parker Ford, but at Drexel Hill, when a visitor would come and I would have a conversation with them, a follow-up conversation, I began the practice of asking them this or challenging them in this way. Listen, friend, I hope that God calls you here. I hope he calls you here. I want you here. We want you here. But I'm much more interested, not in what you think about us or whether or not you like us or like my preaching or anything like that. There's always going to be a better preacher. There's always going to be a better worship leader out there. What I'm interested in is, has God called you to be here? Because if God's called you to be here, then you don't have to worry about what you like and don't like. You can give yourself fully to the work of the Lord and the relationships here. How many of us have honestly asked ourselves, not what do I like about my community or my church, but where has God called me? Because if God's called you, then it doesn't really matter whether you like it or not. (laughs) Not that God doesn't care about your opinions and preferences. I think he does because he cares about you. But just like in marriage, oh my goodness, can you imagine? And we have to learn this lesson the hard way, so many of us. Can you imagine if your relationship was just based on what you liked and didn't like about the other person? Why is divorce higher than it's ever been in our culture? Why is the basic life question that we are t- we, our young people are asked, what do you want to do? What do you like? What if we remembered and learned again how to ask what do you want what do you like what's i know what my image is what's your image can you imagine if god said yes to all your requests all the things i've asked for in my life what a mess my life would be thank goodness for the grace of god that he loves me enough to say no I will not be your vending machine. I will not just give you what you want. 
I'm your dad. I'm your father, which means I discipline you because I love you. Proverbs 3, Hebrews 12. God disciplines those he loves. As a father disciplines his children. Man, I'm thankful that God does not treat me like that, like a spoiled brat. (laughs) We'd be in trouble. And yet so many of us are so often tempted to live this way. We are way more, as a culture, we are way more influenced by consumerism than by any other movement. You are a consumer. In the eyes of the government, you are a consumer. In the eyes of business, you are a consumer. That is, that culturally speaking, your deepest identity is that of consumer. You see over 5,000 products every day. Samsung TV. You know what I mean? Like throughout your day, you see over 5,000 brands every day. You see, on average, the, American, the average American sees over 350 explicit advertisements per day. Can you take 350 and multiply it by 365 real quick in your minds and give me a number? I can't do it. That's a lot of ad exposure. You are inundated. You are saturated. You are told to live your life this way. You're a consumer. Think about what you want. Think about what you like. Think about where you want to eat. This is a dangerous, dangerous game that we play when we take that and we translate it to our relationship with God. All right, fourth posture we'll look at is life for God. And this one is the trickiest one because on the surface, it looks real good. This spiritual posture is the most celebrated in the modern church because on the surface it produces a missional outlook on life and it appears to be pious. Life for God is an attempt, however, to earn his love, grace, mercy, and all the other benefits of godliness by living and acting for him. Now, I've had to be challenged on this. This is the one of, of the four postures that we've looked at, this is the one that I've struggled with the most in my life because I'm a driven person and I'm highly motivated and I really care what God thinks about me. And because I really care what God thinks about me and I'm a highly motivated, driven person and I have some gifts, that means the temptation for me is going to be impact. Now, you might not have the same personality as me or the same uh, vocational call to ministry, um, but that doesn't matter. What, what we've so often been taught in church is work harder. Work harder for God. Make a greater impact for God. Go change the world for God. Be used by God. Which on one level you're like, yeah, okay. But listen, friends. God did not create you to make an impact. God created you to have a relationship. That is why you exist. That is why God created you. He desired relationship. Does he want us to be faithful to share the good news of the gospel in all situations, in all places, Yes, but what is the good news? What is the good news? God wants to have a relationship with you through his son, 
Jesus Christ, who lived a life on earth like you and experienced everything you experienced and suffered for it and was crucified and was resurrected from the dead. And he is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the good news. And he wants to have a relationship with you. It's the temptation to focus on the Great Commission while only giving lip service to the greatest commandment. It's the older son in Luke 15. Dad, I've been slaving away for you. Think about the impact I've had on your household and you've never so much as given me a goat. Here's the thing. You should ask yourself this question. How does God feel about you? How do you perceive that God feels about you? Because if your posture of relating towards God is primarily life for God, then the main emotion that you are so often going to feel is impact or is a disappointment because you can never have a big enough impact. So I can speak as a pastor because that's who I am. I look in my small circle of friends who are pastors and I'm like, he's better at that. He's better at that. He's done that better. He gives better sermons. He, right? Like, and whatever vocation you're in or whatever thing, like that person is better at that. That person, listen, there will always be someone who can make a greater impact than you. In the sense of scope and the success in the eyes of the world like we were talking about in the previous posture. And so it's just this cycle of disappointment because I still struggle with sin. You still struggle with sin, do you not? Has anyone here achieved perfection? And so when I look at my sin, I think about God's disappointment in me because he said, be holy as I'm holy. And when I look at my life and think about, oh my goodness, to whom much is given, much is required, and there's been so much given to me, and my impact feels so small in the midst of a seven billion person earth, And it just makes me smaller and smaller and smaller. And my pride grows bigger and bigger because I keep thinking that I should be able to make this impact. I should be able to live a perfect life. I should be able to do all of these things. And so for so many Christians, the baseline emotion that we think God has towards us is disappointment. We could see many people in the scripture struggle with this posture. It's almost as if salvation is received through grace, but it's retained through work. How ludicrous. The salvation and grace of God is because of the salvation and grace of God. And the reason why God loves me is because he chose to love me, not because I worked really hard and had an impact. I'm never going to be Martin Luther or Moses or Paul. I'm DJ. And for God, that's perfect. Whoever you are, whatever your name is that God's given you and your identity, he doesn't compare you to other people. He doesn't need to. He looks at you and he sees you. Remember when Judas, the woman 
took the perfume, the expensive perfume, and she dumps it over Jesus' head. And Judas starts freaking out. You could have used that to feed so many people. Jesus, you could have made an impact. And he says, don't rebuke her. Wherever the good news of the gospel is preached throughout the earth, this woman's story will be told. She's preparing me for burial. This is a common question too, and it's helpful. In the eyes of the world, Jesus was a total failure. (laughs) He ends his life with 12 disciples who abandon him. What kind of impact is that? Obviously, he changed the world and continues to change the world through it. It's just our definition is so different than God's definition. Peter struggles with this. The Pharisees struggle with this. So these are the four postures that are so common. I'm sure that if you're being honest, that you've struggled with one or all of them. And perhaps you're wrestling through one of those postures today. And I would invite you to honestly look at your heart and ask, how am I relating towards God? Life under God is based in superstition. It sees God through the lens of cause and effect. I obey his commands and he blesses my life. Life over God is the basis of deism and humanism. It desires to control God by following certain rules and principles. If you can figure out the mathematical equation, then you can figure out God. Life from God is based in consumerism. It desires God's blessing, but not actually God. I'll take the candy bar, but not the relationship. And life for God is when impact is valued over relationship. Life's worth is determined by the amount accomplished for God. All of these are an attempt to exert some sort of control over fear and suffering and pain. But God has not called us to live under him or over him or from him or even for him. God has called us to live with him. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, Matthew 28, verse 6, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That should be an encouragement to you. These are people who are laying their eyes on the resurrected Jesus and still doubting. God is very patient and gracious with us. And he invites us to walk through seasons of doubt and wrestling. He's faithful. Some of them doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Yes, go and make disciples. Yes. Of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father. Don't hear me say that's not what God says because he does. We are commanded to go make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. But here's here's how it works. How do you go make disciples? How do you go make an impact? Whatever impact God has for you, whatever footprint God would have you make on earth, how does he desire you to do that? With him. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
Jathani says this in his book, the life with God posture is predicated on the view that relationship is at the core of the cosmos. God, the Father, with God, the Son, with God, the Holy Spirit. And so we should not be surprised to discover that when God desired to restore his broken relationship with people, he sent his Son to dwell with us. Life is meant to be lived with God. With God. This is a teaching for another day, but it's worth noting here. And I will teach it another day. Blessing does not equal stuff. That is not what blessing is. We say, I got a new car. It's such a blessing. I got a new house. It's such a blessing. These clothes on my body are such a blessing. And yes, they are on one level. But even if you didn't have that car, like the person who lives on the other side of the world, even if you didn't have that house, like the person who lives on the other side of the world, even if you didn't have those clothes, like the people who can't afford them, you can be every bit as blessed. Because blessing is about God's presence. Which is why you can't curse what God blesses. Because God is with what he blesses. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You, my friend have been blessed with every single spiritual blessing that there is in the heavenly places. How? How have you been blessed with every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. So when you say, I am blessed, please let it mean that God is with me. So all the stuff will come and go. And it does. But God will never come and go. I will never leave you nor forsake you. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can stop Jesus from being with you. You can say no to him. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. No thanks, I'm pretty tired right now. I'm sleeping. I'm not going to get up and open the door. Jesus says that to Christians. He writes that to the church in Laodicea. He's already got a relationship with them. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens, I will come in and eat with him. So there's always the invitational part where God is continually knocking, continually seeking us, continually inviting us further up and further in to the relationship. But it was always not for the point of stuff. It is never for the point of stuff. It is for the point of living life with God. So as we transition out of the teaching this morning, I just want to challenge you to once again look, what is your posture towards God? How are you living in relationship with God? Worship team, you can come up. Are you living under him, seeking to have a cause and effect relationship? Are you living over him, thinking that you can control your life through principles? Are you living living from him, 
treating God like a vending machine, treating his church like a vending machine? Or are you living for him, running around like a chicken with your head cut off, trying to make a big impact and footprint on this world, which is good on one level, but faulty on another? Or have you received the invitation to live your life with God? To walk with him, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will not fear, for even there you are with me. Psalm 139, if I would ascend into the heavens, you are there. If I would go into the depths, you are there. Where can I run from your presence? Where can I flee from your spirit, O God? You cannot. Your life is meant to be lived with God. And that should be of great comfort and joy to you. So receive that today. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word from beginning to end teaches that you desire to walk with us in the cool of the garden of our life. We thank you that your word teaches from beginning to end that your desire is to live and dwell upon the earth and be so present here that there will be no need for the sun or the stars because God himself will be the light of men. We thank you that your desire to be here with us is so great that you literally became one of us to dwell with us. Emmanuel, God is with us to walk with us. We thank you that your love for us is so great that you fill us with your Holy Spirit and cause us to be your dwelling place. We thank you that you've not called us to try to manipulate you or figure you out. We can't figure God out. <laughs> who is God? God says, who am I that you would try to understand me in some ways? And yet you reveal the deep parts of your relational character to us. The name that which is most important to us is Father. The posture that you've called us to most live in with authority is a life with you. Help us as your people live today tomorrow with you. We pray this in your name. Amen.